Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Auckland Faculty of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr Louise Kugler and today I'm talking to Dr Erica Winneray Kelly about breast health in New Zealand. Erica is a breast cancer surgeon with a fellowship from the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and is based in Auckland, New Zealand. Erica co-founded and is the managing director of both Auckland Breast Centre and Focus Radiotherapy. Auckland Breast Centre is a leading tertiary level breast cancer centre and Focus Radiotherapy has introduced intra-beam, single-dose, intraoperative radiotherapy to New Zealand. Erica is also a consultant and surgical auditor for the National Breast Screening Programme. Welcome, Erica. Thank you. So today we're updating our listeners on breast health in New Zealand. Let's start by discussing prevention. What can a woman do to decrease her risk of breast cancer across the lifespan? So essentially um, prevention is related to modifying the risk factors of breast cancer that we can modify. So we have a lot of fixed risk factors, being female, increasing age are our two largest risk factors, but also breast density, which you can't control, your family history, and of course your own personal history of whether you've had an atypical or malignant lesion. So in terms of the things we can prevent, my biggest um, point I think you need to hear is that when you should do prevention, and most of us consider prevention both for our patients but ourselves personally when we hit this sort of 40 year old age group where we think we should actually start getting fit and losing weight but actually the best time for prevention and breast health is actually as a teenager. Now the unique feature about the breast is it's the only organ that is not fully developed at birth and what that means is that during your teenage years as your breasts develop you have a number of rapidly developing cells and breast units but they're all partially differentiated. So those partially differentiated cells are being instructed on a monthly basis to get ready for lactation. That drive of cell division by immature cells means that you get a number of mutated cells and the breasts then don't go on to repair those cells. So those mutated cells in teenage years actually lay down the risks for breast cancer in your um, many decades later. So we need to look after those cells. Now obviously the one thing that will fully differentiate a breast is to have a pregnancy. But we can't really go into schools and ask them all <laughs> to have a pregnancy by 18 or 19. Uh, so ideally what you need to do is look after uh, the general health of teenagers and the main risk factors for that are weight, exercise and alcohol. So weight, diet, exercise and alcohol of course are important for our risk factors for many diseases and again if you're in your 40s and 50s it's what you should be doing to reduce your risk of breast cancer. But the impact is much higher if you can do it in those teenage years. There is no safe unit of alcohol dose for a girl under 18 at all and with the risk reduction, uh, sorry the age reduction of alcohol in New Zealand of course it means that we've got 16 year olds now drinking rather than 18 year old. That alcohol is a class 1 carcinogen, it directly um, causes um, mutations and increases their risk of breast cancer. The other thing is that our teenagers aren't moving as much now, they get less incidental exercise and more screen time. So getting them moving in conjunction with good proteins, lots of vegetables and fibre and keeping their weight in the normal range will do a couple of things. One, it will keep their estrogen levels low and it will also hopefully delay the onset of their first period because ideally we'd have that happening after 13 as well. 
So um, I think an area of prevention really is, is about looking after our teenage girls as well. And if the mums are doing it in their 40s and 50s, then it's good role modelling for the whole family. Um, other risks of breast cancer that people hear about are things like the oral contraceptive and hormone replacement therapy, and they're not um, as concerning as appears in a lot of media articles. The risk of HRT is really only goes up for women who are using it after 60. Before 60, it's not really a particular risk for preparation is raised to a degree while you're on it related to breast cancer, but the risk drops down shortly after discontinuing it as well. Uh, there are women for whom HRT is a, life, um, a lifeline, and all I would say is that you just need to keep them in screening, and you probably need to have annual screening because those women will have breast, uh, their breast density will persist whilst they're on it as well. So um, that would be my uh, message in relation to prevention. So Erica, you mentioned exercise. How much exercise should we be telling our teenage woman to get? The same as the prescription for any of us, so five uh, times a week of 30 minutes, and that doesn't need to be five days a week, but that's the sort of amount of exercise we're looking at for these women, and that can be incidental uh, exercise as well. Mm. Great, thank you. As primary care physicians, there are certain times across the lifespan we should be extra vigilant and certain populations we should be aware of in terms of risk. How do we assess and manage these patients and who are we looking particularly at? So the biggest um, risk obviously is age. So we have a brilliant public screening program in New Zealand and so women should be you know encouraged to move into that screening program from 45 and that of course is going to be picking up most of our um, cancers that occur. The screening program in New Zealand has been shown to reduce the risk of breast cancer by a third for women who have ever screened, so that's not even in repeated screening, and it's even higher if you are in a regular screening program. Whilst married women do have high rates of breast cancer, in fact, their mortality rate would be similarly reduced by the public screening program as well. So I think it's really important we you know, encourage our Māori women and their communities into the breast screening program. You know, we marched to Parliament over um, a lot of these expensive drugs to reduce mortality of breast cancer, but we have an excellent way to reduce our breast cancer mortality here, which is being underutilised. So I think that would be a really important way to spend our precious resource. The other group I should mention too is our pregnant women. So pregnant women or women who are within a year of pregnancy also have a blip of increased risk. Uh, associated with those pregnancies and that's at any age. The chance of getting a breast cancer still remains low in those groups but it does mean that if we have women who present with persistent uh, lumps or mastitis that isn't getting better or significant um, discharges from the nipple then they're patients that do need to be followed up. And they might be women that you just see again if you're unsure. It's totally fine to have an, a wasted second appointment but actually pick up that and in fact when women come in here often the same thing happens here we will bring them back for a second ultrasound in six weeks to three months because we want to be sure that we're not missing anything. It can be very hard clinically to assess a woman who's pregnant or lactating and likewise on imaging as well so I think there are you know no loss points for continuing just to follow these women up. 
So you've mentioned screening and imaging. Um, things have changed here a little bit over recent years and there are new technologies available in terms of mammography, 3D tomosynthesis as an example. Um, can you discuss this a little bit for our listeners? So our most important screening modality remains uh, mammography and in New Zealand across our uh, breast screening program in most units around the country it's 2D mammography so they're the two view images which we have now. Of all the imaging you can do mammography is the only one that's been shown to reduce mortality from breast cancer so it's aiming to pick up cancer either in its pre-malignant stage, pre-invasive stage or when it's early. Now women will ask for ultrasounds, they'll say that their friend has only heard that the tumour was picked up on ultrasound, but ultrasound will only detect it when it's an invasive cancer, which is why it's never been shown to reduce the death rate from it. So mammography is an excellent screening programme. We now have uh, in some centres 3D tomosynthesis, and that is an X-ray that is done at the same time as the mammography. While the breast is in its compression, a camera will run through the arc of the breast and every two degrees it will take another image, every two degrees of the arc, and then the computer will put those images together so that using your mouse you can move through the breast from one side to the other at two millimetre slices. Now the benefit of that is it's up to 50% higher in detecting a significant lesion and that's what we want to find is significant lesions, but the recall rate for lesions that aren't significant is down by 40%. So that's a huge number of women that we're not going to recall unnecessarily, we're not going to ultrasound unnecessarily or do a biopsy for a benign lesion. It's not in the public screening program yet or in public hospitals uh, for screening. It is found, uh, you will find it in those centres to uh, qualify recalled lesions, but unfortunately to have it in a screening program you need uh, more radiologists to do it because you've got to read a whole lot more images. So it's unfortunately a cost issue at present. We're all competing for the same uh, resource in this setting and so probably it's better to do an age extension of a 2D mammography than it is to introduce tomosynthesis at this time. It is available in the private sector though and it is an excellent uh, addition and it would be considered the gold standard now for breast cancer screening. We recommend two yearly screening in the public screening program and that is based on um, the harm of screening and recalls as well and also just the cost benefit of numbers of lives saved as well. If you can afford it, it's better to have annual screening but obviously that's prohibitive to some people and if you are looking to annually screen then you're probably better to annually screen between 40 and 50 when your breasts are harder to read than you are after that. 20% of breast cancers are still detected in that 40 to 50% age group, but they tend to be higher grade and faster growing, which is why it's more useful to have it in an annual setting. The other aspect of screening, of course, is um, ultrasound. It's not used as a screening tool. It is used as an adjunct to our other screening to increase the sensitivity of the imaging that we're doing or to clarify a symptom, but it's not used particularly on its own as a screening tool. We don't recommend thermography at all and actually it causes more concern for women and anxiety uh, than it does any benefit.
There are questions about radiation exposure from mammography. The radiation exposure from a standard 2D mammography now would be the same as being in a plane from Auckland to Hamilton, so a negligible amount. Uh, there is a minimal dose from 3D tomosynthesis. The majority of devices you find in New Zealand have radiation reducing software on them as well. And in time, when this technology gets better, probably in the next five years, in fact, any 2D images will be created off the 3D images, so the radiation dose would be even less. The risk of a cancer related to mammography radiation is minimal, such that it's not even considered as a risk factor now. Another important point to make, though, about screening relates to breast density, and that is being talked about a lot now. In fact, some states have mandatory reporting to women in the US that they have dense breasts. It is an independent risk factor for breast cancer, and that's not just because it's harder to detect cancers on a dense breast, but actually that increased density itself um, increases the risk as well. Now, that's not something you can do a lot about. It's often related to your body habitus or your uh, family history. But if you do have dense breasts, having an ultrasound can be really important to increase the sensitivity of the testing we're doing. Um, most people can be told on their standard imaging whether their breasts are dense and can be advised that. They're not currently advised that in the public screening program. We don't have a way to roll out ultrasound screening, but later when we talk about what is our gold standard for screening programs, if we had lim unlimited resource, we can touch, talk about that then. So Erica, if we had an unlimited budget, what would the gold standard be? What would you recommend? I think the gold standard for um, breast screening actually relates to tailoring it. Because while we say one in eight to one in nine women in New Zealand will get breast cancer, mm. in fact, some of us probably have about a one in four or five risk. And some of us probably have about a one in 20. And so ideally, you'd actually work that out. You'd look at the family history. You'd look at their breast density. You'd look at age of first period, first pregnancy, etc. And you'd come up with um, probably three groups. And one group would be your low risk group and they might be so low that you'd start screening them at 50 and you'd only screen them every three years. And then there'll be a middle group who you would want to screen every two years probably. And that group would have 2D mammography or if you could afford it, 3D tomosynthesis. And then you'd have your high risk group who should have tomosynthesis and ultrasound every year at every, at every screen. And that would probably be the best way. I don't know how we'd ever deliver that within the public health system, but in a way that's probably the luxury of being in a private clinic where we can do that. Mm. Another point to mention is screening MRI, and a lot of people will come to you requesting this. Screening MRI is indicated in two groups of women. It's recommended in people who have a Gen a genetic mutation which has been located and they're not going to have preventative surgery. So those women need annual MRI. It's stressful for them to have. We pick up a lot of lesions that we're not interested in so it often leads to ultrasounds and biopsies related to it. But that one group are funded in public and in private to have annual screening MRI. The other group 
that is we use it in is people who have had a lobular cancer which has been missed or underestimated on our standard mammography. The lobulars are the group of cancers that are underestimated or not seen. That's the 10% of cancers that don't show up on standard mammography. In women like that, we would want to continue on an annual MRI. It's an expensive test for any system to have as a screening. It's also reasonably unpleasant. It takes about an hour for women, especially if you're claustrophobic and it's quite noisy. So we don't like to use it unless we have to. What about the role of breast self-examination? How effective is it? Should we be telling our women to do it? And if so, from what age? Um, breast self-examination actually does not lead to a reduction in breast cancer mortality and I think that's really important because what it does lead to is an excess number of tests, doctor's appointments and usually biopsies because if someone makes it into our clinic even with normal imaging, even with that vague area of thickening they will end up with an FNA as triple assessment. So what I recommend and what would be in line with the Breast Cancer Foundation is self-awareness. So just being aware of what your breasts look like, which direction your nipples turn in, what they look like, being aware if there are any areas of skin change or a lump, but that's not a monthly self-examination. It's just being aware of your own breasts and what they feel like. That really, I think, is the only thing you should be doing. Great, thank you. So moving now to breast cancer management, there seems to be more preoperative neoadjuvant chemotherapy happening. What is the rationale for this and what should we be telling our patients about this change and is it increasing survival? So neoadjuvant chemotherapy doesn't increase survival and that's not the reason we give it. But traditionally when we all did our training, if people were getting chemo up front, it was because they had a bad cancer. And I think the reason for me wanting to highlight this is it's, it's not been given at the moment because of that. We give neoadjuvant chemotherapy up front um, a lot now, and for a, for a few reasons. If you have a person who is a younger patient, giving people chemotherapy up front gives you time to sort out what to do surgically. So a young person under 45, particularly under 40, we'd be wanting gene testing. That takes some time. We're deciding are we going to take just the cancer off? Are we doing bilateral mastectomy? Do we have to do breast reconstruction? And all of that takes some time. So the beauty of having neoadjuvant treatment is that you've got patients on a treatment and we can get all our ducks in a line to ducks in a row, sorry, to do their surgery. Now the other issue is that it gives us quite a bit of information too and what it is is that we're giving chemotherapy and then we're seeing what we get left and what that helps us do is it helps us with prognosis so it allows us to work out if people are going to be in a good or poor prognostic group and we don't get that information by giving chemo afterwards. It applies clonal pressure to the tumour. Sometimes we have tumours that appear to be HER2 negative for instance, we give the patient their chemotherapy, the surgery is done and the residual tumour shows cells that are HER2 positive. Now we all know that breast cancer is a bunch of different clones but you often don't see those small groups sitting in the background in your main tumour. When we see them it means that we can now add an anti-HER2 treatment and it's likely that patient would have recurred down the track with metastatic disease which was HER2 positive and a patient that we didn't even know was HER2 positive. So it's quite exciting now to apply clonal pressure on it. 
The other reason it's useful is it allows us to give them more chemotherapy if it doesn't work. So obviously we're looking for what pathological response we get from that chemotherapy. And if they're not responding during the treatment, we can change it. We can move on to surgery early or we can go through with the surgery and then change their chemotherapy after. So it's really the ultimate in tailoring treatment. We're really excited to um, be able to use it. It's giving us a lot more information. There's also the other thing. People can see why they're having chemo. Tumors clinically respond within usually the first cycle. So patients can see and feel that their tumor is going. They can tolerate chemotherapy a whole lot better if they know it's doing something. What about gene testing? You've mentioned genes. So some women are offered gene testing for the breast cancer and others aren't. And others then go to vast expense to send samples off overseas. Tell us about this area. Gene testing is a very big issue for patients and everyone overestimates their family history and their risk of being a gene carrier, which has been made worse after Angelina Jolie came out with hers. So the majority of patients with breast cancer do not have a family history and do not have a genetic mutation. But there are some really key patients for whom we need to identify that genetic mutation. People think that having a gene test for breast cancer is like having a pregnancy test, you're either positive or you're negative, but that's actually not the reality of a gene test. For the BRCA1 and 2 um, genes, for instance, they're over 80,000 base pairs long. So you can have a mutation on any one of those base pairs. Now, if you consider that gene as much like a car, then it might mean that that mutation that you've got might mean it's green instead of yellow. It might mean that you don't have a working windscreen wiper, but for the most part, the car still runs. So for in most part, the BRCA protein that is produced still repairs DNA properly. But if you get an, a premature stop codon, which ends up stopping the production of your protein, it won't work. So when patients send their gene off, 80,000 base pairs on both those genes are looked at. All of us will have a bunch of mutations that are not significant and we need to find the one that is. So if you don't have cancer and we don't have a family member to find the index gene in, it's likely you won't be told you haven't got a BRC mutation. It'll be told it's you're inconclusive. So of the ones we know, you don't have it, but it's not to say you're not a carrier. So that's actually more anxiety provoking than ever starting on the gene testing itself. So we like targeting it, and it's important. There are communities which do need to be tested. Any Jewish person with a breast cancer needs to be tested because the rates of BRCA1 and 2 carrier, uh, carriage is 1 in 40 in Jewish communities. They are largely founder mutations, so we're looking directly at three sites on those genes. The... 10 or so million Ashkenazi Jewish people now came from a founder community of about 350 and it's those founder mutations we're looking for. There is a newly discovered Africana founder mutation now as well, which we're seeing in our community more as we have more people coming in from um, South Africa. And my two patients recently who we've detected this mutation in have no family history of breast cancer at all. So it's also looking for key groups. Most people don't need gene testing at all. 
We can gene test very cheaply now. It used to be um, up to about four or 5,000, but there are now private providers that will do a 20 panel gene test. So that's not just your BRCA1 and 2, but it's our other high-risk genes, and that costs about $800, so it's considerably more manageable. We do have access to the regional genetic service as well, and uh, you can make referrals to that directly as a GP, and also as specialists we refer. The main points to mention if you're going down the genetic testing path with patients, they do need to have their insurance in order, life and health insurance, and it does impact their family members, so family members should be aware that that will happen as well. Um, they need to be aware that they may be told that it's inconclusive as an outcome rather than a no. The only people you can say they do not carry it is if they're sitting in a family where you know the mutation. So you found the genetic mutation, you test everybody around them, they're the only people that can be told they're actually negative for a BRCA gene. So the next scenario then is that people do return a positive um, mutation and we counsel them around it, but essentially if you do carry one of our high-risk breast cancer mutations, then if you're coming to me I would recommend preventative surgery for that. We know in sporadic breast cancer that early detection saves lives. We do not have evidence for that in people who carry a breast cancer mutation. They tend to be a more aggressive cancer occur at earlier ages. So I actually recommend that we do preventative uh, surgery and an immediate breast reconstruction. It's not an emergency to do so and I usually think a good year or so in preparation for that is important because there are obviously body image issues as well. Um, and usually by the time you've gone through one year, we've given you a, um, an MRI scan, we've recalled you from that, done a few unnecessary biopsies because there's a lot of noise in young breasts on MR as well, and patients by that point think, actually, I don't want to continue on in this high-risk follow-up. I would like to just have preventative surgery. The ovaries are usually the other associated risk, but that risk is much later and there's certainly no emergency for that. The ovaries come out with their tubes and also they have an abdominal washout as, um, a sample as well. And that usually doesn't take place till after 40 or 45. The only time we bring it on earlier is if there's a breast cancer reason for shutting off their ovaries. So we do that surgically instead. But that's all part of a multidisciplinary discussion. And again, there is no emergency or rush for this. Um, I do actually believe that locating these breast cancer genes in young women is actually a blessing. It is hard to have women who have breast cancer in their 30s to be able to quantify their risk and our strategy going forward if we don't have a reason for it. And I always find actually I'm quite relieved. I found the reason for this. I've got a management plan for you. I can tell you what else you need to screen for lifelong. We can help the rest of your family. So whilst it is scary, I think that counseled in, in that sort of manner, that it's actually useful and it's good information that we can do something with. So Erica, HRT post breast cancer and ovestin cream, what's your view on use here? So if you have a hormone receptor positive cancer, then obviously we're trying to reduce your hormone preparations and usually we've got you on some form of a hormone blocker. If you're on tamoxifen, that's an 
estrogen receptor blocker. So that's an end unit blocker. So you can actually use Ovestin in people who have those vaginal symptoms. Those sort of symptoms are awful and they're only managed effectively by an estrogen supplementation. What I recommend is using it um, for five to seven days to start off to get those mucosal cells nice and plump and then a maintenance dose of maybe once a week or even once every two weeks. There's a minimal amount that's absorbed systemically once those vaginal mucosal cells are plump and if any did get into the systemic circulation you've got tamoxifen blocking the end receptor anyway. So I think that women who have terrible vaginal itchiness, recurrent UTIs, painful intercourse, it's a quality of life issue and it's only really fixed by oestrogen. In terms of um, patch or systemic HRT with tablets, we do advise against it if we can. However, there are uh, some women for whom it's a real quality of life issue. And we do actually put some women on HRT to manage those symptoms. And we do that in conjunction with the medical oncologist and usually an endocrinologist as well to try and modify those symptoms for them. Thankfully, most people don't need that. But definitely it's just an option for women because there's no point saving their life for breast cancer if they're totally miserable afterwards. Okay, so moving away from breast cancer now and onto a common symptom, mastalgia. This can be a tricky problem to manage in general practice. Can you talk us through your approach? Mastalgia is really common and for the most part it is totally benign. There's a particular group of women that will come into you in their late 30s and 40s and they're usually in that juggle stage of young families and working as well. They um, will describe quite intractable breast pain. It's usually cyclical but it lasts longer than that and it's associated with quite significant breast swelling. That is physiological uh, nostalgia and breast pain. It relates in part to your baseline estrogen level dropping slowly as you reach that age. Uh, so you are more sensitive to the other fluctuations. It will get better. It's not a sign of malignancy and it's best managed by reassurance for the large part. 60 to 80% of women with nostalgia will be able to manage with it if they know that it's not breast cancer. A decent bra fitting. Most people are still wearing the same bra they got when they were teenagers and they don't fit properly, particularly having a wide enough strap and wide enough underneath uh, the breast uh, so that you're not cutting off the lymphatics as well. Panadol is your best tablet for the bad days. Voltar and Emugel rubbed into the area is really effective. Brufin gel won't work. Voltar and tablets won't work either. Um, evening primrose oil, I don't recommend. Uh, you have to have it in a very high dose of three grams a day for about three months, which is really expensive, and it's not found to be better than placebo. Uh, likewise, most over-the-counter products are no better than placebo. Unless you're drinking over eight cups of coffee a day, there's no real, real role in reducing caffeine either. But what you will mostly tease out with this woman, these women is that there's um, stress involved as well. We do know that um, stress will increase your prolactin levels through your pituitary gland. And even though it won't be markedly high, it will drive um, pain as well. And so if people can understand that that whole collection is creating this nostalgia, most people can be reassured. There are some women for whom they do have really bad breast pain though, and they're often 
women who have low body weight, dense breasts, and a lot of cysts in their breast. So we aspirate some people for comfort. But what you can do also is go on to tamoxifen. As a estrogen receptor blocker, it just basically shuts down the stimulation to their breasts. And you can use five or 10 milligrams a day. Uh, the five or 10 milligrams a day has a much better side effect profile and it isn't associated with the DVT um, risk as well. These women are premenopausal, so the endometrial risk isn't an issue anyway. And if you put people on it for three to six months, it can actually just get them through that process of shutting down their breast stimulation for that time as well. Mm. Most people, once, you know, once they know that's their next option or try it, um, they're usually put off by it because they know it's an anti-cancer drug or they happily take it. It gives them some relief and then we move them on into their next phase. Recently I've had a couple of cases of new mothers struggling with breastfeeding. It's painful and they're getting recurrent thrush-like infections. What are your thoughts here and how can we help these women? That's actually quite difficult to manage and mostly it's managed by Nystatin um, for baby and for mum. Uh, the women I see are usually... Um, quite beside themselves by the time they've ended up making it to a specialist and I put them on oral fluconazole uh, to manage it, uh, continue them breastfeeding because it's important that we can keep flushing them out. And I suppose as you will all see with your women struggling with breastfeeding and issues with breastfeeding for whatever reason, they do have an option to stop breastfeeding as well, which I also put to them. Uh, the, uh, it's awful seeing people with their added guilt and anxiety and possibly mental health issues associated um, with their um, pressure to breastfeed and so sometimes maybe an option is that they just stop breastfeeding. So Erica, just concluding the podcast, is there anything else on the horizon as far as breast health goes that we should be watching out for? I think the future is exciting for all cancer treatments and breast cancer as well but it is still not here. But ultimately what we are looking for is more tailoring. Saying you've got breast cancer to someone is like saying you've got a dog. It tells someone, it tells you nothing about it. It could be a sleepy 16 year old Labrador, it could be a Rottweiler. And that's what our treatment needs to be directed at. And where that's gonna come in is gene testing, not of our genes, but of the mutations that the breast cancer has and about tailoring that. So it will be about looking for targets on someone's breast cancer themselves and basically creating an antibody to it. In time, people won't be treated with surgery and radiation. They will be treated with oral or intravenous antibodies of some sort. When we gain a resistance to that, you will be re-biopsied and a new medicine delivered. That will also be what our screening will be like too. Your screening will be a blood test in time as well. We know we have circulating tumor cells long before we even see an abnormality on a mammogram and it will be looking um, for those. That is here now for, breast can for metastatic breast cancer. There are some private services in Auckland who can do a blood test and look for circulating tumor cells for your metastatic disease rather than biopsying the metastatic disease itself and actually identify if there are any targets that we have with our current biologic medications available and trying to target it like that. We'll be reducing the amount of radiation we give, reducing the area that we give it to as well, and in time giving less chemotherapy and more 
um, biologics targeting with antibodies rather than medication. Oh, that is exciting. Mm. All right, Erica, thank you for your time today. What would your take-home messages be for our listeners? Um, mammogram screening and, you know, the cost of mammogram screening for the benefit is so dramatic compared to our other interventions in medicine and for breast cancer treatment. That would have to be my take-home, number one. All of us in our community need to move more. We need to keep our weight down. We need to eat well, we need to drink less, and New Zealand does have a very much alcohol-focused society, and it's even harder with our younger people as well, and that whole message of prevention is would probably be one of the most cost-effective things we can do with our health dollar. Um, looking after our teenagers and making them aware about the risk of breast cancer uh, as well, and just m- modelling good alcohol-related behaviours. That um, another message is that breast cancer patients in New Zealand do really well, that it's not an emergency and that we do have access to very good treatments. They're probably my take-home messages. Thank you, Erica. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points, please go to our website, goodfellowunit.org. Thank you for listening.